Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Xander's Facts. What is going on, everybody? Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. It is Wednesday, July 12th, 2023. It's episode 111 of the podcast. Y'all, thank you all so much for listening. We got a lot of facts to get to this week because we have got a returning guest being brought back to the podcast. It is Dr. Bobby, who is basically our expert on Russia and Ukraine and the conflict that's going on between them right now. As you may know, there's a war going on over there. And you know what? Dr. Bobby actually went just recently, traveled over to Europe, not to actually to Ukraine or Russia, but pretty close. So he's got some information to share with us. Also, basically, all the facts you need on everything that's going on with the war over in Russia and Ukraine, which is pretty important to us, even here in America, even across a continent and an ocean away. What's going on over there is still pretty important to the U.S., so we talk about everything you need to know. Basically, give an update on what's going on in Ukraine. That is this week on the Xander's Facts Podcast. Of course, I did say that this episode is coming out on Wednesday, July 12th, which, not to brag, but it is the first Xander's Facts Podcast that is coming out on... A very special day, July 12th, Sanders' birthday. Just thought I'd let you all know because... Congratulations! Dr. Bobby does bring it up, but it is Sanders' birthday today, the day this podcast comes out, which means it is an extra special podcast this week. We're going to get to it in just a second, but before we do... Just thought I'd remind you all that if you like the Zaders Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 111, rate and review the podcast, then check us out on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at Zaders Facts, that is Zader with a Z, and most importantly, remember to tell all your friends, spread the facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about the newsletter. Xander's Weekend Facts. If you didn't know, we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Sunday morning. It's got a recap of the week's top headlines, so you never miss a fact. It is free to sign up and get it in your email every Sunday morning. Just go to the link in this episode's description. And you should also check out the Xander's Facts link tree because it has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. And just in case you missed some of our past episodes, you should probably go listen to those because we do do some new facts every week. Usually, every single episode is a little bit different. So last week, of course, we did not talk about Russia and Ukraine. We talked about college conference realignment, college football, the summer news. It just trickles every single summer. The third year in a row we've had to do that podcast, so we did it again. We also, of course, talked about the indictment of former President Donald Trump, everything you need to know. We had a couple instant reactions to the U.S. men's national team playing Mexico and Canada in the Nations League. And of course, they're playing in the Gold Cup now, y'all, the CONCACAF Gold Cup, if you don't know. Sunday, they barely beat Canada on penalties. Ugh. We got, we're not talking soccer this week because next week is our Women's World Cup preview, if you didn't know. So you're going to want to tune in next week because we're also going to talk a little bit men's soccer, but we're also going to preview the Women's World Cup and find out if the U.S. is going to win their third straight World Cup. Never been done before. Men's or women's. Our U.S. women could be the first to do that. I mean, 
I don't know. But if you've missed any of our past episodes, you should go do that wherever you find your podcast. So let's get to this week's big facts. That would be talking about the Russia-Ukraine war with our Xander's Facts Russia-Ukraine expert, Dr. Bobby. That is next as the Xander's Facts podcast continues. Xander's Facts. Y'all, we haven't had this guest on the podcast in a while. I looked back, actually. It was episode 79 of from last year. We're on episode 111 this week, and we are talking about the war that is going on in Russia and Ukraine. You've probably heard about it, but there's a lot you probably haven't heard about. And that's why we're bringing on our guest this week. It is Dr. Bobby. He is a Russian professor at Virginia Tech. Dr. Bobby, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Xander. And Big thanks for having me on the special Xander's birthday edition of Xander's Facts, mm. or Xander's birthday, in case he hasn't announced it. Today is Xander's birthday. Well, the day the day the, the day podcast day comes out. Yeah, yes, that's right. It's the first time that the podcast comes out on my birthday, July twelfth, yeah. best day of the year. Are you sure? I mean, how about that? But beyond all of our celebrations, we do have some stuff to get to. We are talking, of course, about Russia and Ukraine, the war that's been going. You probably have heard about some of the stuff that's been going on. There was like this mini rebellion that was going on. NATO, Sweden might be about to join NATO because Turkey said, you know what? We'll let you in. That's fine. And Dr. Bobby himself has actually been traveling a little bit. So he has some insight to give us that we can't get here in America, even though he's back in America now. But we're going to get to all of that here on this podcast with Dr. Bobby. But the first thing I wanted to get to is that rebellion that happens with the Wagner group and Prigozhin. First, like, we heard about this on the news. All You know, it was breaking news. Everybody was talking about it. But what exactly happened there with this kind of rebellion where for a little bit we thought, oh my gosh, is, is Putin in trouble? Like, what's going on? Yeah, he was, apparently. And it seems likely he's in a little bit more trouble, was in a little bit more trouble, and in fact is. Certainly than, more trouble than the, the Kremlin is letting on, at least. You know, it actually, you can't quite give a, a whole history of the, uh, the Wagner group here. It's going to take a couple of podcasts, but... You know, I mean, this is this this was the force that really has demonstrated demonstrated itself to be the only effective force in Ukraine fighting for the Russians right now, because the Ministry of Defense forces have been nothing if not incompetent. Whoops! But you know, this is the uh, the force that took Bakhmut at the cost of about twenty thousand people, from what it looks like. Incidentally, if you are looking closely at the war right now, you know that Bakhmut is about to be lost. The Ukrainians now have the high ground around it, and it's looking more and more like the Russians are going to have to abandon it. They're going after the ground lines of communications there. And I don't think anybody is guaranteeing that it's going to fall within the next couple of days, but the signs are looking really bad for Russia in there right now. So where is that in Ukraine? Bakhmut, it is... 
if you look towards where the um, the current areas of Russian occupation, this is going to be in the northwest of that little strip. So it's, I mean, obviously it's it's in far eastern Ukraine, but it's a little bit in the northern strip of where the Russians currently have control. But in any case, you know, this is the uh, this is the force that took Bakhmut and essentially leveled the city. And after they did so, there was a an ongoing dispute about supplies, uh, about munitions that Prigozhin, who, you know, who is the leader of the Wagner group and who led this, this mutiny, was directing at the Ministry of Defense. Uh, Wagner has been dependent on the Ministry of Defense for supplies, munitions, and things like that. And he called out the, the heads of essentially the Russian military by name. And sometimes very colorful names. You know, Russian is especially fertile soil for beautiful and creative obscenity. Words and, we can't use on this podcast. Yeah. If you say so. You know, he was pretty free in um, describing Shoigu, the uh, the Minister of Defense, and Gerasimov, who is the Russian, the Russian chief of the general staff, basically the guy in charge of the forces. I mean, calling them out directly. He had actually been doing this for for quite a while. Um, so after Bakhmut is taken, tenuously, the division between the Ministry of Defense and Wagner just grows sharper. And at one point, Prigozhin actually accuses the Ministry of Defense of attacking of attacking Wagner forces. So at one point, Wagner captures a Russian colonel. And to all appearances, they beat him. You know, they they make him give this like hostage video confession and he's you know got like a big ass black eye and he goes on there and describes what he did so eventually uh the wagner forces withdraw safely and the ministry of defense takes over bakhmut essentially at this point they're just defending it they get to the sort of relative safely of southern russia where they claim they're again attacked by the ministry of defense some with i think it was helicopters it was it was some kind of air assault and this was what Prigozhin at least cited as a central provocation for the uh, the the mitiash, the mutiny. And this is how it's it's being described in Russian: is that this was this was a, a mutiny, not quite a revolt, a rebel, a rebellion, but they were really moving against the Ministry of Defense and not necessarily against Putin. Uh, which is where things really get kind of kind of weird. But anyway, as this begins, they essentially take the entirety of um, Rostov on Don, and then they begin this this march for liberation or whatever it was they called it towards Moscow. They go through Voronezh. There's further attacks, and you know it. I costs I think about eight or so Russian uh, Ministry of Defense lives. And in fact, these were pilots, and these are not people that the Ministry of Defense can afford to lose. And it actually kind of seemed like there was nothing that was really going to be able to stop the column until it got to Moscow. Um, now, how this happened, this would have been a really gory mess for everybody involved. You know, most likely it wouldn't have been successful, but given the incompetence of the Russian military so far, it, it's not out of the question that Wagner could have, you know, really done a lot of damage. So this is kind of the background, I guess, and sort of what happened. After that, everything becomes just incredibly obscure. Yeah, we heard about um, the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, basically 
brokering this deal as Prigozhin and his men were marching, presumably, to Moscow. But the we hear about the president of Belarus brokering this deal to have them stop and have Prigozhin actually reside in Belarus. What do we know about that? Because Belarus is obviously one of the few allies that Russia has in all of this. Um, well, with every passing day, what Lukashenko has said becomes less plausible. Yeah, I mean, Prigozhin apparently, well, now he's almost undoubtedly not in Belarus, as Lukashenko says. Um, in fact, it's unclear where he is, but he's he's got to be in Russia somewhere. What's really gotten weird about this is that you know, he met with Putin on June 29th. And the headlines for this, of course, you know, is that Putin meets with Prigozhin after the mutiny. And this is also after Putin vows swift, bloody revenge on all the mutineers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of gives you an idea of how difficult Putin finds his position right now. Uh, again, this was really the only effective fighting force in Ukraine. And pretty much anywhere else for that matter, as far as, you know, the Russian military goes. This meeting was not just with Prigozhin. This was also with 35 of his commanders. And it wasn't just like a meet and greet, you know, like, hey, okay, we're loyal to you now, which is apparently what the minister or um, the Kremlin's press office is saying about this, is that, you know, they swore loyalty to Putin and this kind of thing. They actually met for about three hours. And, it, you know, it's really interesting to just sort of speculate on what could have been going back and forth in this. Um, you know, given Prigozhin's sort of weird honesty sometimes, particularly the fact that he declared the truth about the invasion, that this, you know, Ukraine was no threat to Russia. You know, this whole this whole thing is just a farce. That he would, you know, get to talk with Putin for three hours about this. And, you know, that the Kremlin would trumpet this as, you know, a sign of loyalty is really weird. So anyway, where Prigozhin is now, you know, is really just kind of a mystery. I mean, apparently Wagner has been offered further employment opportunities, not necessarily as Wagner, but, you know, the various commanders and soldiers have been. There was even a televised raid, and some of you might have seen this, on uh, Prigozhin's possessions in St. Petersburg. Um, where, you know, the Russian media has just been totally trashy. So everything seems confused. Everything is murky. And, you know, in short, it would just be really silly to take anything at face value that comes out of the Russian government. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. I don't think anybody does. And certainly nobody in Russia does. Yeah. So, I mean, this all really leads to... Where does Vladimir Putin stand right now? Because this rebellion against him obviously happened, and you know who knows what's going on right with, with Wagner right now. But also, there was that report or whatever of the drones, the drone attack mm-hmm. on the Kremlin, which Russia says was Ukraine. Was it? Was it not? I don't. I don't know if we know. I I think it probably was. Okay, so. It wasn't an attack, but mm-hmm. I, I do think Ukraine was, was likely behind that. And then the last time we spoke, I was looking back on our notes, and we were talking about Russia was calling up 300,000 uh, basically civilians to come join the 
army, and, and that led to a bunch of people trying to flee the country. So where does Vladimir Putin stand right now in his own country? Is his power, is his support diminishing at all? Yeah, it's probably pretty interesting you brought up that, uh, that mobilization, because that is what he needs to do to, to fight this war. I'm not saying win this war, but to fight this war. And politically, he can't do it, particularly after this, 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 this mutiny. You know, is Putin still in charge? Yeah. Um, but is his power and support diminished? Yes, also. But I mean, this, this, the war has been a catastrophic mistake from pretty much any angle. Um, but from the personal Putin angle, it's, it's really been a big one. It's, it, it really is kind of difficult to peer really closely in there and, and see just how, how much support he may have lost. But it seems to have been considerable. Well, could we find the next Russian elections are March 2024, which is less than a year away. Could we find anything out about that or are the elections in Russia just all, you know, it's not really free and fair nice try buddy yeah there was a, there was a great old soviet joke you know that's it well it was sort of like a weird riddle um you know when were the first soviet elections held when god put eve before adam and said choose a wife and, you know and it's really been kind of the same thing ever since it's not just a soviet joke it's been the same thing you know if putin runs it's obvious who's gonna win uh it's not really even gonna be a contest the question, of course, could be, is he going to, you know, March 24, it's a little ways away. Who knows what's going to happen before that? I mean, I wouldn't want to predict it, but if I had to, I would, I would go with, with Vladimir Vladimirovich. What does that mean? Putin. Duh. So turning our attention now over from um, what's actually going on in Russia to the West, obviously Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, partly because he wanted to or he thought that the West was divided enough that they wouldn't really fight or help Ukraine and fight back. That obviously has uh, not gone Putin's way. And now Finland has since joined NATO since the war began. And a couple days ago, Turkey, who was one of two, I believe, holdouts in NATO for Sweden to join, just said that they're going to support Sweden. Hungary's the other one, and you would think Hungary's probably just going to say, all right, well, you can come. So Sweden is, you know, not that big of a power, not that big of a country. You wouldn't think a big of a threat to Russia. But what effect does that have with Russia, basically, what we just talked about, looking like they're in shambles, and NATO keeps expanding? Yeah, Sweden, well, it might not look like that much, but... But Sweden, along with Turkey, is one of the traditional Russian enemies. Um, you know, they, you know, the 17th century, 18th century, they fought a lot of wars against Sweden. Fight me. You know, in a, in a way, this is kind of how Peter the Great got to be the great. You know, and, you know, during the, uh, the 18th century, there were, you know, a number of wars against Turkey, too. You know, it's, it's significant in the, in the way that, you know, this just sort of adds to to what Putin was trying to prevent. And it's, this is another NATO country right next to his border. You know, it's exactly what he did not want to have. Is it going to have an effect on this war? 
Probably not. Um, you know, but every little bit helps. And you have a country that is, you know, throwing full throated support behind Ukraine. It definitely doesn't hurt. Yeah, we gotta we got more to talk about with NATO in a minute because they're meeting right now in Lithuania. They're having their big summit, so we gotta talk about that as well. But another thing that came up in the news regarding our country, the United States, was that uh in the new aid package that's being sent to Ukraine, that includes what we know as cluster bombs, and which I wrote about on Xander's Weekend Facts are controversial because they're the, basically these bombs that Russia's been using in the war that have dozens, hundreds of these droplets, but some of them don't explode immediately, and they can stay there for years, which can obviously, you know, be bad after the war is over. So I mean, I guess I'm going to ask you why these are so controversial. Because there was the uh, the Biden White House obviously supports it, but then I saw on CNN or something that one of the top Democrats in Congress is like, "I don't support this," and then you had a Republican in Congress who went on there and was like, "I support this." So what does that really mean that um, the U.S. is sending these bombs to Ukraine? Obviously, it means they're sending aid to Ukraine, which is good for them and what they want. But why are these so controversial? Uh, well, the the weapon itself is, you know, the the real controversy is due to the fact that they have this extremely widespread beyond their initial zone of impact, combined with that that high failure rate of the individual bomb rates, um, and I think it can get as high as forty percent. It's a fact. Forty percent of these bombs don't explode on impact, and can be dangerous for years or even decades afterwards. You know, the, the cluster bombs that the, the United States used in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War were still killing people in the, you know, in the first decade of the 2000s. So, you know, these things are off. You know, it's, it, they come out as these like shiny little metal things that any kid that finds is immediately going to start playing with, you know, and start, you know, pick it up, start throwing it around and that kind of thing. So, I mean, you, you can see how awful they would be for the civilian population. Um, you know, a little kid, a farmer, really anybody who runs into it can get a limb blown off or, or worse. Um, the U.S. definitely ran into a lot of issues with these in Iraq, too. They, there were some pretty credible accusations of, you know, civilians being killed by these a lot. And this is one of the reasons that so many nations but not the United States and Russia, have, have banned their use. I mean, it really is a violent, destructive weapon. And again, any weapon in a war is atrocious. I mean, the risk to civilians here is significant. And there, I think there rightly are a lot of objections to using these. But this is not going to be the introduction of cluster munitions into the conflict. And as a matter of fact, Ukraine was accused of using, using these as far back as 2014 in Donbass. So it is, it's actually something they've been asking for. And Russia, of course, has zero regard whatsoever to the weapons they use. And it's been employing them for decades in Georgia, Chechnya, Afghanistan. And in Ukraine, they've actually been deliberately used on population centers. Um, this happened in Kharkiv early in the war. I mean, there was another place where it hit a, one of them hit a kindergarten. So it's awful, but it's not really anything new. You know, like I said, Ukraine has, has been specifically asking for them. The U.S. is kind of justifying it uh, in this way, saying that it's going to be the Ukrainians using them on Ukrainian territory. And 
it is reasonable to assume that for this reason, they're going to keep a pretty careful eye on where they're being used. So they will know how to do some kind of cleanup after this is over. The Pentagon also claims that there's a very low failure rate with uh, the bomblets on impact. You know, I can't really evaluate that. Um, I don't know how reliable that claim is or not, but even a single dud found by a kid or a farmer is, you know, it's one too many. But relatively speaking, in the overall scheme of this conflict, it's really hard to accuse the U.S. or the Ukrainians of heinous disregard for human life, mm-hmm. you know, particularly seeing what they're up against. I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm just confused why Ukraine is specifically asking for them. Is it just because they're like, well, Russia did it first, we don't care? Or No, I mean, you know, the, for one thing, they, everybody's getting low on artillery. And, you know, you can, you can shoot these. They don't necessarily have to be missiles. You know, there's, there's a couple of, of ways you can deliver this. And, you know, they can obviously be very effective against concentrated Russian forces, which the Ukrainians seem to have a knack for finding. Okay. In the broader scheme of things, when you're talking about aid, is Ukraine, are they getting the aid that they want or that they really need from the West and from the U.S.? Obviously, they're getting some, and that's allowed them to stay in this war and actually make advances against the Russian-occupied territories in Ukraine. What, what is the sense, really? Well, whenever you've got this much of your, of your country occupied by, you know, a criminal invader, you're not getting enough. You know, are they grateful for what they're getting and all that? Yes, very much so. Um, but they, uh, they very much do need more. You know, it's especially now with this, this counteroffensive, it would be good to have the air support that they could have for the F, from the F-16s. You know, what they're facing as far as the dug-in Russian defenses is formidable to say the least. I mean, the Russians have been a completely incompetent attacking force. The playing defense is much easier. And, you know, in some places, their defenses, you know, are, uh, you know, around like 35 kilometers thick. You know, they have tank traps, barbed wire, all kinds of minefields, which, you know, in this instance is going to be much more brutal than any any cluster bombs are going to be. You know, it's it's really going to be difficult to get through this. And having the air support that you could get from the F-16s would be a huge advantage to the Ukrainians trying to do this attack. And they don't have it. And they're not really going to get it in time. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm asking is obviously this past year in the U.S., We've had a divided Congress, some mm-hmm. of whom, in especially the House, who have been very vocal on their opposition to giving a lot of money to Ukraine when we have issues in the U.S. they say we need to deal with first. So has that really had an effect, or has it just been continuous for the U.S.? Has there been a noticeable drop-off at all to Ukraine? No, no, no I, don't, I don't think so at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think it's been, it seems to have been getting progressively better. You know, there were a lot of weapons uh, that were just sort of like off limits at the beginning. You know, and even the F-16s that I was just talking about, they're now on the table and other countries are going to be providing them. It'll be coming late, but at least they're getting them. Another one, though, which I don't think, well, at least last I checked, is not completely off the table, but we're not giving them, which would have a huge impact on the war, would be the, um, the attack ops. The uh, the missiles essentially they're I mean a little bit like the uh, the storm shadows 
Um, but if the Ukrainians had this, I mean, they could essentially hit Crimea. There's nowhere in in their country that they could not hit with ease. You know, they could hit Crimea, which would completely dislodge the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which would create a huge problem for the Russians trying to strike the civilian centers with you know some with some of their cruise missiles. Once that happened, this war could end really quickly. The the Russian army is just not motivated for it. And if Ukraine is really hitting Crimea, it would be that much more devastating. So I think the idea may still play out, but one of the restrictions may be that the U.S. itself just does not have enough of these. The thing is, though, I mean, for the relative low cost, you could make the entire Russian war effort unfeasible. The Ukrainians could hit them anywhere in the country. And as they've already shown with some less effective weapons like the HIMARS, they know what to look for and they know where and when to strike. And this has had a devastating effect on the Russian military as far as numbers. It would have a devastating effect on Russian morale. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, the way this war is going, even if the Ukrainians were not getting anything and everything they needed, I don't think it would affect the morale. Until the Russians are gone, they're going to keep fighting. Mm-hmm. So now I wanted to ask you about your recent travels as I kind of alluded to at the top. Dr. Bobby, if you all haven't known, was recently in the Baltic countries of Latvia and Lithuania. Wow! Yes. So, and those are obviously NATO countries. Latvia borders Russia and Belarus. Lithuania has a border with Belarus. And also, um, Russia, that Russian enclave they have. Leningrad. What is kind of the feeling there, right? I mean, you're talking about almost at the front lines. I mean, we're over here in the U.S. We're Europe and uh, the Atlantic Ocean away, but they're right there. And we're talking about former territories of the Soviet Union, too. What are their feelings right now on the war and how it's going? Oh, well, the official, you know, the official line is is hardcore pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia, you know, give them everything they need. We need to stop this now. Um, Russia has to be soundly defeated. They've got to go, which is completely understandable. Even a even a passing glance at the history of the 20th century, the 19th century, even you know earlier than that, will tell you exactly why. You know they know what a big threat this is. Yeah, I, but you know that said, it's it's a little bit different on the ground, and it really depends who you talk to in some places. Riga, for instance, the capital of Latvia. When I got there, I was, you know, I will usually speak Russian in Rico. You know, you can you can get around with it very easily. Um, but you know, this year I didn't know what to expect. Um, I was, I mean, I was pretty reluctant to do it at first. And I was speaking English in places where, you know, in past years I've been speaking Russian. But as it turned out, you know, it it was kind of okay. You could you could still speak Russian there without people, you know, giving you the evil eye. There are a lot of Russian expatriates there. Um, a lot of Russian media is still being run out of Riga. So it's it's not like Russians are being completely rejected because of their ethnicity or anything like that. The Latvian government, of course, is very much supportive, and most of the Latvians themselves are. When you get a little bit further east in Latvia, closer to the Russian border, particularly in Dalgothkins, where it's a much higher Russian population, Things change, but, you know, 
not to not to a shocking degree. You know, there are a lot of people who do support Russia in this, which, you know, seems absolutely shocking. <laughs> but they do. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of them are ethnic Russians. Um, a lot of the ethnic Russians, of course, do not. But, you know, there's it's it's kind of odd, too. I mean, talking to some people out there, it's almost like they're looking for an excuse. I talked to one person right before I left, actually. And, you know, I was asking, you know, what, what people here think of the war and, and that kind of thing. And his, he told me about how people from Ukraine would come in, go to a cafe, order food, and not pay for it. Huh. Which wasn't exactly relevant to what I was asking about. But whatever. I'm not a journalist. It was just a conversation. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not unusual for people of different Soviet republics to think people in the other republics suck. And that's kind of, you know, what they were thinking with this. Um, now, this this was a, an older person. You know, he was obviously formed in the Soviet Union. You know, maybe that's got something to do with it. But there is, you know, in some cases, there is this sort of like weird prejudice. Yes. Lithuania, however, to all appearances, is much different. Um, there does not seem to be, I mean, I wouldn't say it's unanimous, but it's pretty close to it. Yeah, in Vilnius and even in Kaunas, you see as many Ukrainian flags as, as you do Lithuanian flags. Um, you know, there is full-throated support behind this. Now, part of this, of course, was due to the fact that the NATO conference was coming up at the time. And it's happening right now. Yeah. But, you know, the, the support that Lithuania especially has been throwing behind Ukraine, it was, it was not just something being done up. Yeah, I mean, you know, you'll see Ukrainian flags everywhere. You know, there are still people who speak Russian, but I was never really that happy speaking Russian in Lithuania. I mean, I did it a few times this year without any problems. But what, yeah, one really interesting little anecdote. We went to uh, the Museum of Illusion in Vilnius. And on the door was was a sign. I mean, it's usually, I think it was like 11 euros to get in. Basically, citizens of Ukraine admitted free. Get that dough! And, you know, this wasn't something that was totally unusual out there. Um, you know, there were a number of, of little things like that, in addition to uh, all the flags and things like that around. The uh, presidential palace actually had some of the columns decorated in Ukrainian colors. So, you know, officially and pretty much on the street, there's a lot of support, you know, behind Ukraine. Story time! Yeah, so obviously the, the NATO summit, which is happening right now, the 11th and the 12th of July, is happening in Vilnius in Lithuania. And I was just reading about this here. The president of Lithuania actually criticized some of the other NATO leaders, leaders of other countries in NATO, saying um, they failed to prevent the Russian aggression and said that this has been something that's been in the news the last few days that the refusal to invite Ukraine to NATO would be a mistake. Obviously, President Biden said that when the war ends, they can come. But obviously, under Article 5, if, Na if Ukraine joined NATO, then all of NATO would be in war with Russia, which is obviously something that we kind of don't want. Well, something doesn't want either. I mean, for all the bluster and everything like that, Russia attacking a NATO country is would be absolutely insane. I mean, the best way it ends is with nuclear annihilation. 
and that's the best one for Russia. Wow. I mean, it really isn't. Yeah, it's it's really just not an option. But the Baltic states saw this coming uh, long before the the more Western governments did, or admitted they did. At least. So it's not surprising that you would hear this coming out of Lithuania. Is that why do they kind of really try and get the summit here? In you know, obviously, I mean, the U.S. presidents there, U.K. prime minister, all the leaders of NATO mm-hmm. are just miles from the Belarus border in Vilnius right now. Is this kind of like a show of to Belarus and Russia of you know we're right here? Yeah, I think for that and for I mean you know the, the other reasons we've just sort of enumerated. They could not have picked a better place for this. And Vilnius is a great, great city. You know, I I love it every time I go there. And I, I yeah, I think it's the perfect place to hold this NATO this NATO conference right in the middle of this war. And you know, honestly, given the atmosphere, I'm hoping something something more comes out of it for Ukraine. Well, yeah, over the next two days, we'll have to see. Well, you know, where next year's summit's going to be. A place where I just was, Washington, D.C. All right. USA. America. All right. So kind of just to wrap things up here, we've heard about a bunch of the stuff that's been going on in Ukraine. Obviously, the Progression Rebellion, Sweden, um, Ukraine wanting to come into NATO. But unless you're following it really closely, I think there's a lot of major events that have happened that haven't really been covered by U.S. media. So what do you think some of those major events that have happened are that we really should know about that a lot of us probably really don't? You know, there was a lot of coverage of the uh, the Russian war crimes early on. And, you know, we seem to have taken our foot on the gas on that one. But these have not stopped. And, you know, I really do wish... Western media would pay more attention to it because it's not something that's ceased. And this is particularly true with with the way the uh, the Russian government has been abducting Ukrainian children and shipping them off to Russia. Um, and they are not disguising this. I realize that this is this is why Putin has been indicted in the Hague. But you know, I think it's something that we should be beating the drum more about because it, it you know this really is an atrocity. I mean, you are completely stealing these children and shipping them off to Russia, where at best they can be second-class citizens. And that is at best. You know, we, we just don't seem to be talking about it that much. That said, you know, there, there are a lot of interesting things that are going on within the Russian command structure that we don't seem to be hearing too much about lately. Um, I mean, we have a little bit, you know, but particularly in the wake of the mutiny, you know, and this is because it's hard for me to get my own information other than from, you know, Ukrainian, Russian sources and things like that. But one of Prigozhin's demands when he was doing his little mutiny was, you know, basically he wanted to remove the command structure in the Ministry of Defense. And it seems kind of seems kind of weird because for a while, um, Gerasimov disappeared, you know, and we don't really know what happened to him. He's, he's been doing this periodically. Um, when he's been in trouble, but then he just he just very very recently reappeared uh, in a essentially you know uh, one of those staged Kremlin videos of him sort of like acting like a commander. Of course, it, it would all be speculation, 
trying to figure out what's going on. But what's also interesting about this, and which is probably an even more interesting story, is that at this meeting, Suravikin should have also been in attendance, and he wasn't. And Suravikin has long been associated with Prigozhin. And there's a lot of speculation that he knew about this mutiny and did nothing about it. And he has completely disappeared since. Now, Suravikin was basically in charge of the entire Ukrainian theater for quite a while. Um, this, is, this was the General Armageddon or whatever it was in Syria. Suravikin has just been, he has been completely MIA. There, there was sort of like a hostage video that he made, um, you know, saying, I'm okay. There was something from his daughter saying he's at work, but nobody's seen him. Given what has happened since to, to Prigozhin, that he's had this meeting with Putin and that kind of thing, you know, it's really interesting to speculate on what has happened to this guy. This is something we haven't really seen too much of. Um, but again, you know, then again, it's all just speculation. So it might not even be news. Also, before I ask my final question, I should note that I was looking on here and I found that the leaders of um, who are attending that NATO summit, you've also got the leaders of Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, and Zelensky is there too. So you've got all these major world leaders who are, those aren't countries in NATO, but they're obviously against Russia, who are right there in Vilnius, which is, it's, it's not very far from the border of Belarus if you look at, look at it on the map. Nope, not at all. All right, so... Wrapping it all up here, Dr. Bobby, thanks again for coming on the podcast. But I guess overall question to wrap it up, where is the tide turning right now on this war? What is the sense that it's going on? I think I know the answer to this from what we've been building up to and what we've been talking about, how things aren't going so well in Russia. What is your sense right now on how this is going to play out? In terms of the you know, the initial justification for the war given by, by Putin, it's, it, they've already lost. Ha ha, loser! They, they are not going to depose the, the Nazi regime in Kiev, as they called it. Oof, um, I mean, that's just not happening. I mean, it would, it would probably take the Russian military at least a decade to build itself up enough to, to get an attacking force that could take Kiev. Yeah, if you look at, I'm looking at CNN right now, they have this map of the Russian-occupied territories, and mm -hmm. it really is just this little strip of land on the eastern edge of Ukraine, not even anywhere near Kharkiv, certainly not anywhere near Kiev, like not even close in Ukraine. Like the amount of territory that they hold is, it's obviously they hold territory, but it's, mm -hmm. when you look at it, it's not very much. Yeah. No, it's not. And, you know, given the way, and I probably should have addressed this in your previous question, too, I think I meant to, um, given the way Ukraine is fighting this counteroffensive, I mean, they are doing it as a kind of war of attrition, not this lightning counteroffensive that everybody was expecting. I mean, they are taking aim at supply depots, ground lines of communications, command centers. They're not going straight at it. The longer they do this, really, you know, the harder this is going to be for Russia to defend themselves. And once those defenses break down, it's, it's probably going to collapse, 
you know, so not only I think is the, um, I mean, obviously the original dreams of this war on the part of Russia are now just completely off the table. Um, that's, that's not going to happen, but even holding on to what they have is going to become, I think within the next several months, not weeks, but months become increasingly tenuous. I mean, I just, I don't think they can hold on to it. I think really probably their best case scenario at this point is to hold on to Crimea. And I'm not entirely sure they're going to be able to do that. I mean, another thing that we haven't really seen so much in the media is the uh, the partisan activity that's been going on behind behind the lines. I mean, there are assassinations, there are car bombings, uh, there are sabotage. I mean, this this is not something that doesn't exist yet. Russia's ability to to continually deal with that is going to get weakened as time goes on as well. So, you know, I mean, how is the war going to turn out? Who knows? I mean, all kinds of of crazy things happen. But I just don't see any scenario where this is positive for Russia at all. They'll be extremely lucky, lucky if they can hang on to what they have. I mean, the strip of land they have. I mean, if you look at the map of Moldova, and you see Transnistria, this is kind of what, what they what they control in Ukraine looks like. It's just this, it's becoming a more and more narrow strip of land. Mm-hmm. They can cut this off in the middle and sort of cut off the ground line to the Crimean Peninsula. I mean, that will probably be the beginning of the end. And you see they're trying to do that too when they with they make their advances in Bakhmut, which once you get there, you can kind of you kind of see the path for them to cut it off right there. Well, you know, there are several different ways they can go. Um, you know, and Bakhmut is a little bit further north, but once they can, once they can sort of get a breakthrough, and this kind of seems to be what they're doing now, is that they're just sort of probing. You know, as they repeat over and over again, we haven't put the full force. All of the weapons they gained from the West and things like that, they haven't really used them yet. Most of them have been sitting and waiting. Once they figure out where they're going to go, it is really going to get started. But this will probably be, you know, at least at least another couple of weeks. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Bobby, some one-of-a-kind insight from the Baltic states, giving us basically everything, all the facts that we need to know regarding Russia and Ukraine and the war that's going on that is that's really important. We may be a continent and an ocean away, but even here to us in the United States, it's extremely important what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. So, Dr. Bobby, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Give us all the facts. You bet, buddy. Anytime. Xander's Facts. So there you have it, y'all. Thanks once again to Dr. Bobby for coming on the podcast, giving us the lowdown, breaking down what's going on in the Russia-Ukraine war, because it's really important, I think, and there's a lot of things that We probably should know here in America that the news media really isn't covering, unless you're paying really close attention. So hopefully you learned a lot of facts on this week's podcast. But those are all the facts that I've got for episode 111 of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember that if you like the Xander's Facts podcast, if you liked all the facts that you just heard, you should follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 111 to your device to all your devices, and then you can delete it the next day. I think it still counts. And re-download it the next day. I'll do all that stuff. Rate and review the podcast. Check us out on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. By the way, 
I did say Twitter. We should change that to Threads. Xander's Facts is on Threads, at Xander's Facts. You should go check that out. And also, most importantly, you should spread the facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about the newsletter, about Xander's Facts on YouTube. We publish all our new episodes to YouTube. We just had our most watched or most viewed, at least, episode that we put on YouTube ever. This is true. Last week. So you should go subscribe to the Xander's Facts YouTube channel. The link is also in this episode's description. And you should check out the Xander's Facts link tree because it has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. So, as I mentioned earlier, next week is episode 112. We are previewing the Women's World Cup. It's an expanded World Cup, so there's 32 teams now in the Women's World Cup. We're going to give you all the facts you need to know and, of course, predict who's going to win this year's edition of Women's Soccer's Brightest Stage. Is it going to be the U.S. for the third time in a row? They begin, by the way, this is coming up pretty soon because next Thursday is the first games. I believe the first game kicks off at 3 a.m. The times aren't going to be great, but the U.S., their first game is against Vietnam, and it's on Friday night at 9 o'clock, which is not too bad. There are two of their group games are at 9 o'clock. The other one's at 3 a.m., which is, I mean, I'm going to watch it. I'll be up, but, like, that's rough. So we've got a big-time fact-filled preview of the Women's World Cup coming up next week, episode 112 of the podcast. Listen to that. Remind yourself. Put a reminder. Women's World Cup Preview Podcast, Wednesday. Launches at 5 a.m. Of course, you can listen whenever you want, wherever you want, on YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. So that is it. That is a wrap on episode 111 of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 112 next week. I just busted right inside him, and he can't extend on me anymore, and he seems a little overwhelmed by my girth and tonnage.